Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. As our pastor finishes up this section. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So our pastor is finishing out chapter 6, and over the past weeks, we have heard him give us some pretty intense warnings against turning away from Christ. And then last week, we looked at some intense encouragement, and he reminded us and showed us that true believers will have full assurance because they look to Christ Jesus, not to their own works, not to their own abilities, but to what Christ has done. And they can walk in faith, hope, and love. And these are going to be the evidences. And these evidences give us even greater assurance as we walk in them. Now the whole theme of the book of Hebrews, we've always said Jesus is better. Or we might even zero that in a little bit more today and we might say, Jesus is the best high priest there can be. And that's really what our pastor is going to do. Our pastor is addressing believers and if you read through the book of Hebrews, you realize that these are believers who are beginning to experience persecution. You'll look at different Places. If you go chapter 10, verse 32 and following, you'll see that it seems that they may be losing jobs or their possessions for their faith. They're at least being outcast from the temple. And so their faith in Jesus Christ is costly. And so our pastor is reminding them, you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Don't look at the things around you. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to your faith in what Christ has done. That's the key. Interestingly, this is really the only time in scriptures that an anchor is used as a metaphor. It's the one time in scripture. But our pastor doesn't use an anchor the way I grew up around the Gulf Coast. And we used anchors a lot in boats. We'd use a sea anchor. If we went out deep sea fishing, we'd throw it in. Or we would use an anchor to anchor on the beach or anchor in the bay. But our pastor doesn't use the anchor that way. He uses the idea that an anchor holds us fast and he points us to our spiritual anchor which holds fast where? In the heavenlies. 
We got Jesus who went behind the curtain in the heavenlies to make our salvation sure. And so, because Jesus has gone behind that veil, remember we've seen that in previous weeks, he has become our high priest forever, and now he shows us after the order Melchizedek. Yes, next week we're going to look at Melchizedek, and actually it looks like probably for two weeks. I don't think I can do it in a week. Uh, There's just too much to be done. But let's take a look at the lessons that our pastor has for us in today's passage. First and foremost, Jesus Christ's work assures our salvation, and it is an anchor to steady our souls when we go through the present storms of this life. As Dan shared earlier, none of our lives are trouble-free, are they? We live in a sin-cursed world, and, and God often uses suffering to refine us, to strengthen our faith, and to challenge us. And so our pastor is pointing us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ. Don't look to your circumstances. Don't look to those things. Look to what Christ has done on your behalf. He's pointing you to Jesus as the strong anchor. So what's his argument look like? Well, I think it breaks down a couple different ways. First and foremost, our hope of future salvation. In other words, the reality that we are right with God is sure. Why? Because God's promises have never failed. So he starts with an example. Notice, Abraham. Father Abraham is given in this example of a man who received God's promises and how God was faithful in carrying those promises forward. If you read the Old Testament, and we've gone through... uh, I was looking, it actually was back in 2010. So it's been a few years. But we did a series on the book of Genesis. And if you remember, when we did that, we saw that Abraham's life story is God initiating and a mere man responding in faith. Huh, sounds like us, doesn't it? God initiates In your life, he calls us, he awakens our dead spirits so that we can respond to him in faith. And Abraham, you remember what he's called in scripture, Romans 4.11? He's the father of all who believe. So literally in scripture, Abraham is called your father if you believe in Jesus Christ. And so let's think for a moment about Abraham's life. God first appeared to Abraham while he was still Abram. Remember that? Before his name was changed. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He was basically, it appears, a non-believer at that point. But God came to him. And God commanded Abraham, pack up everything you've got, leave your relatives, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. Now, we look at that and go, oh, okay. But think about in that time and era, it was not easy for Abraham to obey. In those days, you didn't just call up the local U-Haul truck, have it, drive it to your house and load everything in. No, if you moved, it was very difficult. Donkeys, camels, to be able to move your stuff. And then if you move hundreds of miles away, You didn't have the postal service. You didn't have telephones or cell phones. It meant separating from your family. So moving like Abraham did was a serious thing. 
And then think of all the unknown hardships involved. Going to a new land. Would those people be friendly? Would they be hostile to me? Would they speak a different language? All of these things. And no, we couldn't call our favorite realtor Jim and say, hey, hey, I need a new place. They didn't have them. You had to make your own way. But the thing that we're being pointed to here is, did Abraham obey God? Yes, he faithfully obeyed God. Now, Abram means exalted father. Now, that's quite interesting when you look, step back and you look at that, because Abraham had one son initially, Ishmael, and that was by Sarah's servant, Hagar. And that was when he was 86. So it's interesting that his name means exalted father, and basically at 86 he has one son. But then, at the ripe old age of 99, remember, God changed his name. And it changed it from exalted father to father of a multitude of nations. And we look at this and we go, really? He's got one son. Seriously? But Ishmael wasn't the child of the promise, was it? We know that God faithfully gave him promises. But Abraham didn't get to see all of those promises and they were slow to be fulfilled. And so Abraham is given an example to us. We do know that when Abraham died at the ripe old age of 175, he had fathered several nations. So his name has actually already come true by the end of his life. Through Ishmael, there were several nations. And then through the sons of Keturah. Remember, after Sarah was called home, he then married Keturah and several other children were born. But none of those children were children of the promise. It was the son born to Abraham when he was a hundred years of age. Well past the childbearing years. When Sarah bore to Abraham Isaac, the promised child. Interestingly though, when you think about it, when Abraham was called home, he had twin 15-year-old grandsons. You remember Jacob and Esau. And how much property did he have in the promised land of Canaan? One cave where he had buried his wife. Doesn't seem like a good fulfillment of the promise, does it? But yet, Abraham died in faith. Hebrews 11.10 says, For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was a man of faith. He looked to God and he trusted to God and he rested in God's promises. And though, and we're going to see this in the coming chapters of Hebrews, though Abraham didn't get to see every promise fulfilled, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in fact, our pastor tells us in Hebrews eleven twelve. therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, remember he was a hundred when he had the child of the promise, were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And when he died, he only had two grandsons. But God had a bigger plan, didn't he, for Abraham? Abraham was the beginning of the unfolding of his perfect 
infinite plan to redeem us to him. And what we need to learn, what you need to learn as you look at this, is, is there has never been any person who has trusted in God's promises and ended up disappointed. You can rest in a sure and steadfast anchor as you look to Christ Jesus, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, who has redeemed you and set you apart and allowed you to be in God's family, to be a son or daughter of Abraham. How amazing is that? And so, well, God may delay. I mean, come on. I was a little frustrated when the rain wouldn't stop. And we had the lazy mud river around our property. But then we see God's hand. He's protecting us. He's showing us a better way. You see, we need to be children of faith that we keep our eyes focused. I know my God is good. He is gracious. And I can trust Him. I can lean on Him. Why? What's the author say? Look at verse 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's all about Jesus. He redeemed me. He's my righteousness. He's my holiness. Not my works. You ever failed badly? Just done something stupid? Done something disobedient? And you're going, oh, how could God love me? Look to the sure and steadfast anchor. Look to what Christ did, not your actions. And rest in those. And so, here's a truth that you can take to the bank. Our hope of future salvation is sure. Why? Because our God's purpose is unchangeable. And it's unchangeable since the foundation of the earth. Look at 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now there's a couple things I want you to observe. When it says God desired, we look at that and go, oh, I desire a chocolate bar. Eh. That's a weak interpretation. This word desired here, in fact, I like Strong's Concordance puts it this way. Desired expresses God's eternal divine purpose. This is an intense desire. This is going to happen, okay? You don't have to doubt it. It's going to happen. And so when it says when God desired, it's, uh, he's, he's not messing around. He's going to make this happen to show more convincingly his heirs. And so what he's saying there is God has purpose to show the heirs the promise of the unchangeableness of God's purpose. Think when he called and he redeems Abraham. Is it all about Abraham or Isaac? No, it was about Jesus Christ, wasn't it? That's the ultimate direction that God was moving. Oh, from before the foundation of the earth, God had planned and he backs things up. And so Abraham is a man of faith in the promises of God not even understanding them. Isn't that amazing? And so you and I, when we look at our lives and we're going, I don't understand why. Why has the big C entered my life? Why has this relationship fallen apart? Take your eyes off the circumstances and look to Christ. And, and what God's unchangeable purpose is there is this. I submit he's, pointing to his son, Jesus Christ, as high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
God made those promises to Abraham because he was unveiling the plan of salvation. Remember, even when he sacrificed Isaac, what do we find in the New Testament? Abraham sacrificed or was ready to sacrifice Isaac because he believed God would give him back. And it worked out differently. But that's a man of faith. And he says, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I know he'll do it. That's what you and I are called to do, is that we're going to walk in faith. And we can go back and be reminded. God started this when? Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us. He chose us as believers when? Before the foundation of the world. That should excite you. Because it doesn't depend upon your fickle emotional state of the day. Oh, I think I believe Jesus today. No, he sent Jesus to redeem you, and he's going to accomplish that. God's purpose in sending his son was to redeem a people for his glory. And so, when certain churches go, it's like, well, it's all about free will. You know, God did this, and maybe a few people will just choose God. Smells of smoke to me. It doesn't match the testimony of Scripture. Because that leaves salvation to the rebellious, sinful hearts of men. No, God planned this before the foundation of the earth to bring this forward. I like how Charles Wesley put it. Remember in that song, And Can It Be? We were fast bound in sin and nature's night. I was dead in my sin and trespasses. You see, if God had left my salvation up to the will of this fallen rebellious sinner, no hope. Because what Romans say? Paul says, Romans 3.10, there is no, no, not one who seeks God. But praise God that God determined. And he reached down and he gave me, he gave you. If you are here going, yeah, I'm pretty sure Jesus is true. Good, then you... You're one of those. You're the elect. You, you can respond because you're able to acknowledge that. Quit questioning it. Rest in what Christ has done. And what God calls his people, what are they called here? Look at verse 17. Heirs of the promise. Are you an heir of the promise of God? Yes, you are. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. Now let me zero in on that word heirs for a moment. Heirs do not choose to be heirs. Let me say that one more time. Heirs do not choose to be heirs. If that were the case, if you could be an heir, how many of y'all would be an heir of Trump or Rockefeller or... I mean, I sure would. I mean, I'm like a Turner, so I could be an heir of Ted Turner. don't like the politics, but I'll take... Yeah, you get my point. Heirs don't get to choose, do they? Who gets to choose? The owner of this state gets to choose who will be heirs. Oh, maybe that applies to salvation too, doesn't it? He chose me. He chose you. If you're here hearing the good news of the gospel and you're going, oh, I'm thankful. Then you're an heir. You are an heir of salvation. How amazing is that? And my God gets to choose how he wants to give his estate. And he said, if you have faith in my son, you get it all. It's all yours. 
You have rights as the sons of the living God. How amazing is that? Amen? And it's amazing how many people will deny that right of God to grant salvation to whom he chooses. Instead, they say, oh, God has to be fair. He needs to give everybody. He has been more than fair by receiving you and I and allowing any of us to be redeemed. And so, you know what that means for my salvation, and this is what I think our pastor is helping us understand. My salvation is sure, not because of my faith. My salvation is sure why. That's what Jesus Christ did on that cross. Don't you ever forget that. That makes your salvation sure. And that's what Abraham did in faith. He didn't get to see all this stuff, but he says, God will do it. I trust him. I'm just going to rest in that. And so when you look at your heart, you'll see that God does. Now, if you have some struggles with that, I encourage you, go to Romans chapter 9 this afternoon. Spend some time reading it. If you're going, I'm not sure, that just seems so, you know, God chooses in some and not others and lets them go. And Let me just give you a snippet of what's in Romans 9. Look at verses 20 through 23. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Put that in Mark's paraphrase. What are you talking back to God for? Why are you questioning him? He says this is how it works. And then Paul goes on. Will what is molded say unto its molder? Why have you made me like this? Doesn't the potter have right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel, vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I paraphrase that and go, you know what? The potter gets to make toilets and Hummel figures out of the same clay. That's God's choice. And if you're able to acknowledge Jesus Christ, then guess what? You've got to be the Hummel figure. Quit worrying about it and just say, praise God. I'm sure glad he made me that way. And rest in what he has done. You see... Too often, I run across people all the time, they look at their salvation and they go, they mistakenly believe that their destiny is controlled primarily by what they have done. Oh, I walked an aisle as I was seven. Or what they're doing in the present. And they look at their life. But isn't it rather the thing that determines your future, what Christ did at the cross? He was crucified, he was buried, he was raised for our righteousness. You know my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're going to go right back there. For our sake, God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. His life, his death, his resurrection. All of that earned the elect believers righteousness. Not how hard we believe. Not how strong our faith is. As Jesus said, we can have the faith of a mustard seed. 
But what matters is how strong and how powerful the perfect, great, high priest work was on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? Now, our author doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, Our hope of future salvation is sure because our God can't lie. Now, most of us know some of the attributes of God. God is truth. God's very nature is truth. Verse 18, he says, It's impossible for God to lie. Isaiah 65, 16, the prophet declares this, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the form of troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, John 14, 6, he said this, Jesus said to me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when our author tells us that God, through Jesus, made purification for our sins, remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, and that he has entered within the veil as a forerunner, as our great high priest at the order of Melchizedek, then we need to remember, God's not lying here. We can be assured that that's true. This was planned from before the foundation of the earth. How dare we question God in his very nature by doubting it? Now, how many of y'all, I mean, I'm not asking for hands because you'd embarrass yourself. How many of y'all have ever told a lie or bent the truth? Yeah, I can put my hand up. We call them what? Little white lies? Try to make them right? And then somebody questions your integrity and what do you do? How dare they call me a liar? Yeah, we're good at that, aren't we? We lie all the time, yet we get so offended when people call us a liar. The argument that the pastor is showing us here is, with God, it's impossible to lie. Can you imagine how offended God gets when we doubt his promises? That he has shown again and again that he is faithful and true? He's never lied in all of eternity. It would, it would deny his very nature as the God of truth. And so when he gives these proofs, you know, we all know the court thing. Go and we swear on the Bible, so help me God. We swear an oath by what? Somebody greater than ourselves. Well, God can't do that. Because he's God. Ain't nobody better. No being bigger and so, I don't swear by something better. I just simply lay these things before you. And we doubt his promises. I love how the Apostle John writes it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Yeah. So here's the question. Do you believe God's promises concerning his son Jesus? Or by your actions, by your attitude, are you calling God a liar? Do you fail to believe his free offer of salvation? Don't. Accept it. Believe it because God is truth. Then our pastor shows us lastly, our hope of future salvation is sure why. Because God himself gave an oath. 
This just carries on with this same idea. Our pastor gives us an illustration, and it's exactly what I just spoke of. When we go into court, we say, we swear by something greater, so help me God. But God can't swear by something greater. Look at verse 18. So by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. There are two unchangeable things. One, God's word, his promises. You got it. It's sure. And then you have God's oath that he will carry them through. That is what your salvation, that's what your relationship with the almighty creator of the universe is based upon. And that's why you can say, it is sure and steadfast as I believe in Jesus. Amen? Now, so what? Verse 19. I think this is the so what. Our pastor says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. My salvation, your salvation is sure. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Our pastor points us to what Jesus has done. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus wasn't like the earthly priest. He's already established this in the previous passages. Jesus secured your salvation and mine. How? He went into the inner place behind the curtain. And he didn't have to do it. And we'll look at that more when we look at Melchizedek. Because he was in the right family. Or because he was at the right age. Jesus was qualified by his purity. But more on that next week. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem the elect. God said, go, bring them home. Call them back to me. And he went and he did that work. And so he entered into the heavenlies. He went behind the curtain. And it was done. As simple as that. And that means our salvation is secure. And and the pastor's going, guys, he came out of Judaism. And every year you had to go to the temple and you sat with bated breath when the high priest goes in and you wonder, would he come out? Would our sins be atoned for for another year? And then when the priest came out, okay, God will have mercy on us another year. That's over with. Jesus did it once and for all. It's complete. It's finished. And so he, our pastor, is encouraging you and me to go, take hold of that hope that is set before you. Look to Jesus. Because It depends completely upon God and His unchangeable purposes. Isn't that great? It does not depend upon our fickle hearts. It depends upon God. Now, why are we commanded to still have hope in Him? Simple. What Christ bought for us when He died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but He purchased for us the ability to hold fast in faith. He enables us as we read His Word, as we fellowship together through the means of grace. He enables us to continue to hold fast. What Christ bought for us at the cross was not a nullification of our wills. We're not these mindless robots going, I believe Jesus. No. We're people who think and what 
Christ purchased for us was the empowering of our wills so that we can and we want to hold fast. You ever struggled in a sin and you're going, oh, I can't believe I let my God down. We run back to the cross and we realize it's His work. Thirdly, what Christ bought was not a canceling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the command to hold fast. When you fail, go, I failed. But my older brother, Jesus Christ, he didn't fail. He obeyed perfectly, and his obedience is mine. Hallelujah. Paul summarizes this really well, Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am I, I am already perfect. You ever feel that way? No, I know, you're not perfect, trust me. I can just ask your wife or your husband or your friends. No, what's Paul say? He says, but I press on to make it my own. Oh, okay, you better get working hard, right. But then listen to the next phrase of Philippians 3.12. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Praise God. It's what he did. It's not my feeble, wandering heart. It's his work on my behalf. Jesus Christ laid a hold of Paul, just like Jesus Christ lays a hold of you and me, and he makes us his own by God's grace. So let our response be what Paul is. Paul pressed on to lay hold of the hope of that salvation in Christ Jesus that was already purchased for him with the promise. That's how we're going to be heirs of the promise. It's like, it's already done. Let me just try and work it out. What about you when you face discouragement? Do you look in faith to your God? Or do you look in circumstances? Too many of us, we look in our feelings. And they deceive and they lie. The father of lies loves to bring in our feelings. Now we need to look in faith to the fact of history that Christ was born, he obeyed, he was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day from my righteousness. God has given us a promise and an oath. And those are two strong motivations to continue in faith. He wants us to grab a hold of that every day. Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your friend. And say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's his work, not yours. The sure anchor of our soul is not our faith. But it's Christ's work on our behalf. Amen? Here's a good way to look at it. Your goodness does not determine the future strength of God's feelings for you. Your goodness does not determine the future strength of God's feelings for you. It's not your works. It's not your actions. Rather, it is God's love for you that determines your future. He's the sure and steadfast anchor, isn't he? And he loves you when you're unlovable. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's our hope. Rest in that sure anchor, my brothers and my sisters. 
and don't let go of it. That's the testimony that our pastor is giving us today. Now next week we'll look at Melchizedek, and probably the following week. Because the more you look at Melchizedek, the more you see. It's the guy who's not written about, but there's so many truths that are there.